0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022,
1: where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. And here's a look at today's top stories. CBS verifies Hunter Biden's laptop. Republican states look to preserve a Trump border policy. Republicans accuse the Pentagon of harmful race and gender based policies. Iran boosts uranium enrichment while the IAEA condemns them. Ukraine evacuates Kherson and Mykolaiv residents. A factory fire kills at least 38 in China. A fight between armed Colombian groups kills at least 18. The
0: EU raises an alarm over the license plate dispute between Kosovo and Serbia. The Senate investigates a second potential Supreme Court leak. And two Estonian men are arrested over a $575 million
1: crypto scheme. In our top story, CBS News verifies Hunter Biden's laptop. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, Fox News, CBS and NewsBud. On Monday, CBS News said it confirmed the authenticity of data from Hunter Biden's laptop 769 days after the story first broke. CBS's report follows long delayed verification by The Washington Post and New York Times in March. Initial 2020 reports on the laptop by the New York Post were widely dismissed as unreliable and even labeled Russian disinformation by some. Twitter and Facebook blocked or limited sharing of the article, which was published just days before the presidential election. CBS reportedly received a, quote, exact copy of the laptop data and commissioned the Minneapolis-based Computer Forensic Services, or CFS, to conduct an independent analysis the report found no evidence of data modification, fabrication, or manipulation. Mark Lanterman, the CFS's chief technology officer, concluded that the data was authentic and created by Hunter Biden. The laptop has gained much attention from House Republicans, who will take the majority this January and have promised to focus their investigatory powers on Hunter Biden's business dealings. In a recent letter to the AG, FBI director and the Delaware U.S. attorney, Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, alleged that Hunter Biden and the president's brother James profited from a $5 million wire from a company connected to CEFC, the Chinese energy firm, in August of 2017. Hunter Biden's laptop has produced material about his personal struggles and his foreign business ventures in Ukraine and with China. The information has not provided any clear evidence that Joe Biden benefited from his son's business dealings.
0: All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are some narrative spins, beginning with the Republican narrative from Town Hall. It's bad enough CBS News commissioned an independent analyst to confirm what was already proven two years ago, but then it provided the sanitized version of the story of Hunter Biden's laptop. The details are more salacious than CBS cares to acknowledge, and House Republicans are going to get to the bottom of his shady dealings starting in January. And we
1: counter that with the Democratic narrative coming from Daily Kos. So this is how the GOP is going to celebrate its House majority? There are numerous subjects, domestic and foreign, they could be investigating. But instead, they're going to focus on Hunter Biden's laptop. This will do nothing to help the American people. Instead, it will serve conspiracy theory fodder to supporters of former President Trump and degrade trust in government investigations. They should be ashamed.
0: From time to time, we have nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 40% chance that Hunter Biden will be indicted in the U.S. on any charges alleging violation of state or federal law before the next presidential election on November 5th, 2024. Want to help us improve the news? Go to org/pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. GOP-led states look to preserve the Trump-era border policy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, CBS, and NBC. On Monday, 15 Republican-led states asked U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan to allow them to intervene in a case and defend the Trump-era Title 42 immigration policy, which Sullivan struck down earlier this month. After his ruling, the Biden administration asked for five weeks to prepare for the change in policy. In the court filing, the states argued that border states like Texas and Arizona would face increased migrant flows, and wherever the migrants end up relocating to, they will impose financial burdens on the states involuntarily hosting them. Title 42, which has led to the expulsion of migrants more than 2.4 million times at the U.S.-Mexico border based on public health grounds, Was authorized by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, at the outset of the COVID pandemic in March of 2020. The migrants haven't been allowed to seek asylum and instead have been returned to Mexico or their respective home countries. The state's filing added the states have sovereign and quasi sovereign interests in controlling their borders, limiting the persons present within those borders, excluding persons carrying communicable diseases, and the enforcement of immigration law. If Sullivan grants the state's request, they can bring the case, originally brought by asylum-seeking families, before the U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C.,
1: and possibly before the majority conservative Supreme Court. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Two spins have been generated, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from PJ Media. The upcoming end of Title 42 has illegal immigrants lining up at the border to create an avalanche of border crossings. This will feature many violent criminals getting into the U.S. Seeing as though the Biden administration doesn't have a contingency plan for stopping this invasion, everything must be done to reverse Sullivan's reckless decision and protect the border. And countering
0: that is the Democratic narrative from MSNBC. Since the U.S. has dispensed with most COVID protocols, there's no public health excuse to continue Title 42, which was always a xenophobic policy disguised as a COVID measure. It's inhumane to continue to turn away these migrants, many of whom have legitimate asylum claims, under this guise. Lawmakers should work to fix the immigration system, but Title 42 must go.
1: And the Biden administration is ready to move on. In our next story, the Pentagon is promoting harmful race and gender-based policies. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Daily Caller, Daily Mail, Fox News, and Politico. A new GOP report has criticized the Biden administration for allegedly overemphasizing diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, which the report labeled as critical race theory and gender identity in the U.S. military. The report suggested that these policies undermine the military's ability to defend U.S. territory and fight the country's wars abroad. The report was put together by Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, and Representative Chip Roy, Republican of Texas, to investigate left-leaning political ideologies in the U.S. military and their potential negative effects on the armed forces' ability to function correctly. The report alleges that less than a month after his appointment as Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin ordered all commanding officers and supervisors to schedule a day to discuss extremism. The Biden administration later identified fewer than 100 cases of extremism out of 2.1 million active forces. The Department of Defense has defended its policies, saying diversity, equity, and inclusion programs strengthen the military, give it a broader pool of potential troops, amid an institution wide recruiting crisis, and have no bearing on readiness to defend the nation. The GOP may be able to wield greater influence on the DoD policy starting January 3, 2022, when they assume a majority in the House of Representatives. House Republicans will be able to establish their own hearings on topics of concern advanced legislation, and platform concerns such as these. All right, thanks for those facts,
0: Eric. Red State brings us the Republican narrative spin. The military's obsession with race and woke ideology only harms Americans and the U.S.'s interests abroad. House Republicans have a duty to investigate this and purge the military of toxic woke culture. The DOD needs to focus on critical emerging threats, such as China's
1: rising geopolitical power. And Politico gives us a democratic narrative for this story. The GOP's obsession with wokeness in the military is just another Fox News-fueled overreaction to the institution's essential diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. The armed forces reflect the composition of the U.S. population, and its soldiers deserve a culture that supports all Americans and is free of extremism. (coughs)
0: Iran boosts their uranium enrichment following an IAEA resolution. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Al Jazeera, Arab News, the Islamic Republic News Agency, and Reuters. The Atomic Energy Organization of Iran, or AEOI, stated on Tuesday that stockpiles of uranium enriched up to 60% had increased at Natanz nuclear facility, and that its production has begun for the first time at the Fordow Fuel Enrichment Plant. Tehran is in possession of six cascades, or clusters, of IR-6 centrifuges in service at three plants in Fordow and Natanz. The IR-6 is the most advanced model Iran is using on such a scale, and it reportedly intends to add 14 more IR-6 cascades at Fordow. This comes a day after Iranian foreign ministry spokesman Nasser Kanani announced that Tehran had taken steps in response to last week's IAEA censure resolution, which criticized Iran for alleged insufficient cooperation with the nuclear watchdog. Kanani dismissed the second resolution in six months as politically motivated. Tehran has long denied any ambitions to develop nuclear weapons, stating that its nuclear program is for civilian purposes only. While weapons require at least 90% purity, a significant stockpile of 60% enriched uranium could reduce the time needed to build a nuclear bomb. Meanwhile, the UK, France and Germany, the so-called E3, condemned the expansion of Iran's nuclear program, saying Tehran was going well beyond the limits set out in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or JCPOA, a 2015 agreement to limit Iran's nuclear activities. Negotiations to revive the JCPOA have been stalled for months, most recently the U.S. declared that the talks were no longer a top priority given the ongoing
1: protests that erupted in Iran in September. Three spins have emerged from this story, Scott, and we begin with an anti-Iran narrative, courtesy of BNN Bloomberg. Tehran may argue that its nuclear program is peaceful, but this is hard to believe given that Iranian atomic activity is expanding at an unprecedented pace and authorities have imposed restrictions on international monitoring. Tehran must urgently resume cooperation with the IAEA monitors to avoid further escalations that may destabilize regional and global security. And
0: the pro-Iran point of view comes from Press TV. The IAEA Board of Governors has been warned that approving an unconstructive resolution based on false claims only to maintain a Western-led maximum pressure campaign would cause a backlash. The IAEA should not be surprised that Iran has boosted uranium enrichment. Tehran is open to conducting technical talks with the IAEA experts, but will not accept attempts to
1: politicize
0: its nuclear program.
1: And the Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say that there is a 50% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before the year 2030. We shift our focus to the situation in Ukraine and day 272 as Ukraine evacuates Hirson and Mykolaiv residents. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Associated Press, France 24, Guardian, Ukraine Form, and Daily Beast. Ukrainian officials have begun evacuating residents of the southern regions of Kherson and Mykolaiv, fearing that the loss of water, heat, and power caused by Russian strikes will make conditions unlivable amid the winter. Deputy Prime Minister Irina Verichuk said accommodation, transport, and medicine would be provided, with priority given to women and children. Along with the sick and the elderly. Sergei Kovalenko, CEO of DTEC Yasno, one of Ukraine's principal energy providers, warns Ukrainians to brace for rolling blackouts until March of 2023. Quote, Although there are fewer blackouts now, I want everyone to understand, most likely Ukrainians will have to live with blackouts until at least the end of March, he said. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department's Ambassador for Global Criminal Justice, Beth Van Schack, on Monday alleged that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, quote, has been accompanied by systemic war crimes committed in every region where Russian forces have been deployed, adding, it's very hard to imagine how these crimes could be committed without responsibility going all the way up the chain of command. Meanwhile, the Security Service of Ukraine, or SBU, in coordination with National Police and the National Guard, carried out a raid of a 1,000-year-old Russian-backed Orthodox Christian monastery in Kiev on Tuesday. It said, quote, these measures are being taken as part of the systemic work of the SBU to counter the destructive activities of Russian special services in Ukraine. On the ground, Russian attacks were reported in the regions of Sumy, Kharkiv, Kherson, Donetsk, and Zaporizhia in the last 24 hours. Ukrainian officials said four civilians were killed and four were injured in Donetsk, while three people were killed and ten were injured in Kherson. One person was killed and two more were injured in Kharkiv. Elsewhere, the Associated Press on Monday fired James Laporta, the journalist responsible for a story citing a U.S. official who alleged that it was a Russian missile that landed in Poland last week. A subsequent report citing three officials said it was likely a Ukrainian air defense missile.
0: Thanks for those facts, Eric. CNBC brings us an anti-Russia narrative. Russia's deliberate targeting of energy infrastructure is unnecessarily increasing the suffering of civilians and amounts to war crimes this continuing
1: Russian barbarity must be confronted. pro russian narrative coming from TASS. Attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks. These strikes will stop once a more sober position on the current military situation is reached.
0: We've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 40% chance that Vladimir Putin will be charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court, before the year 2024. A factory fire kills at least 38 in central China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, The Guardian, Reuters, Al Jazeera, ABC News, and DW. A massive fire at a factory in the city of Anyang in central China's Henan province killed at least 38 people on Monday, injuring two others and left two people missing. The fire broke out on Monday afternoon at a factory of Caxinda Trading Company and was brought under control several hours later. Many of the victims are said to have been women manufacturing cotton-made winter clothing and pants. More than 200 firefighters and rescue workers were deployed to the scene in the Wenfeng District, the city's so-called high-tech zone, where the privately owned company traded industrial products including chemicals. Chinese media reported that the blaze is believed to have been caused by one or more welders who violated safety regulations, causing sparks to ignite the cotton fabric in the two-story factory building. While the investigation is ongoing, authorities said criminal suspects had been taken into custody in connection with the fire at the industrial park. Fatal industrial accidents have been frequent in China in recent years. In March 2019, an explosion at a chemical plant in Yancheng killed 78 people. In 2015, 165 people were killed when explosions destroyed a chemical warehouse in the port of Tianjin.
1: Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the two spins that have emerged, we begin with an anti-China narrative coming from Washington Post. This latest fatal incident underscores China's inability or unwillingness to successfully implement workplace safety standards given a spate of industrial accidents. Added to this is corruption and immense cost pressures. Beijing must finally start valuing human life over competitiveness. Global Times brings us the pro-China
0: narrative. Those responsible for this tragedy must be held accountable. That said, China is taking great strides to increase workplace safety through strict, long-term measures at the administrative and corporate levels. And it has been successful. Within a decade, the number of workplace accidents and fatalities has dropped drastically.
1: And we turn our attention to news coming from Colombia as a fight between armed groups leaves at least 18 dead. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Guardian and ABC. Colombia's defense minister told reporters on Monday that at least 18 people died on Saturday as a result of clashes between dissident factions fighting for control of drug trafficking routes. The conflict took place in Puerto Guzman, about 60 kilometers or 37 miles from the border with Ecuador. It's the highest death toll from fighting among illegal armed groups since Colombia's first leftist president, Gustavo Petro, took office in August. Petro vowed to bring total peace to the country by ending a decades-long armed conflict that claimed at least 450,000 lives from 1985 to 2018 alone. The clashes reportedly involved rebel dissidents who opposed a 2016 peace agreement between the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC the government, and the self-proclaimed Border Commandos, a group comprising of former FARC fighters and a right-wing paramilitary group. Under the 2016 agreement, 13,000 members of the leftist FARC were allowed to reintegrate into civilian life and form their own legal political party. However, security forces estimate that around 2,400 FARC dissidents have abandoned the deal. Meanwhile, negotiators from the Colombian government and the Leftist National Liberation Army, or ELN, met in Caracas, Venezuela on Monday to start fresh peace talks. The development ends a three-year stall in dialogue after former President Ivan Duque put a stop to negotiations when an ELN bombing killed 22 cadets. The ELN became Colombia's largest remaining guerrilla group following the 2016 peace agreement that disbanded FARC increasing its activities in territories formerly controlled by the latter group. Both the EU and the U.S. have listed it as a terrorist organization. Foreign policy
0: brings us a left narrative spin. Though significant obstacles remain, the fact that Colombia and its leaders have indicated there is hope for peaceful dialogue shows that this historically violent country may have turned over a new leaf. It won't be easy to persuade all stakeholders to reach agreement, but Petro has already conducted more diplomacy than his predecessors.
1: And we have a right narrative coming from El American. It's evident that Colombia needs total peace, but it should not come at the vast cost of implementing total impunity. Petro's plan is disastrous, as it would allow asset laundering operations to benefit criminals who should instead be forced to pay sanctions and hand over their tainted money to the Colombian people. We've also got a cynical narrative on this story coming from Insight Crime.
0: Petro's Total Peace plan offers a general framework to open dialogue and is a step toward achieving his ambitious goal. But the strategy is risky as there is no alternative in case negotiations go wrong or if criminal groups refuse to lay down their arms. Most problematically, this proposal fails to tackle the roots of violence in Colombia and could further decentralize groups, as evident in FARC's demobilization. The EU raises alarm over a car plates dispute in Kosovo and Serbia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Politico, BBC News, The Associated Press, Balkan Insight, and N1info. The European Union's High Representative Josep Borrell warned on Monday of escalation and violence after emergency EU-brokered talks between Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic and Kosovo Prime Minister Albin Kurti failed to resolve their long-running dispute over car plates. Borrell suggested that both nations were to blame but particularly singled out Kosovo's Kurdi for rejecting a proposal to defuse tensions related to the plate dispute. Local Serbs in Kosovo often desire to use plates issued by Belgrade that are not legal in Kosovo. Following a request from the U.S. Ambassador Jeff Houverneur, Prime Minister Kyrgyi announced overnight on Monday that the decision to fine drivers with Serbian-issued car plates was postponed for 48 hours. Kurdi said he would work with the U.S. and the EU to find a solution during the next two days. Kosovo police plan to impose fines of €150 starting on Tuesday morning as the government has decided that Serbian license plates predating its territory are no longer valid, ordering 50,000 Serbs in northern Kosovo to use Kosovo-issued plates. Car plates have long been a source of contention between Serbia and Albanian-populated Kosovo. Tensions have been escalating recently with Kosovo Serbs resigning en masse from institutions in Serb-majority municipalities in northern Kosovo this month. Kosovo unilaterally declared independence from Serbia in 2008, while the U.S. and most of its European allies recognize it as an independent country. Belgrade, with support from Russia and China, has not acknowledged Kosovo's sovereignty.
1: We have several spins, beginning with Narrative A coming from b92.net. Belgrade has shown its commitment to dialogue and openness to find a solution that de-escalates tensions and preserves peace between Serbs and Albanians in Kosovo. Unfortunately, the other side doesn't want to fix this problem. It's absurd that Kosovo is willing to start a conflict when neutral plates could ensure stability and avoid deaths.
0: Narrative B comes from RTK Live. EU's Joseph Borrell has failed to be a neutral mediator, favoring Serbia during talks and distorting reality to blame Kosovo. While Pristina has sought long-term peace and stability, Belgrade has consistently undermined these goals and violated previous agreements to pursue its hegemonic ambitions.
1: Narrative C coming from active. Despite Kosovo having its right as a sovereign state to immediately implement its laws… This is the wrong moment to enforce the rule of law on illegal car plates in the north. Pristina may not be capable of doing it alone, and its western allies are already involved in the Ukraine war. So Belgrade could take advantage of this to promote unrest while blaming Kosovo authorities. This is messy all the way around.
0: This story features another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that Serbia will recognize Kosovo by July of 2042 according to the
1: Metaculous Prediction community. Do you have a personalized plate on your car, Scott?
0: I don't. I always thought that people would think I was pretentious or, you know, if someone was trying to follow me, if I had, you know, uh, I just feel like being under the radar, I would take rather than you know exclaiming whatever that's why i don't put bumper stickers on my car either i don't want the uh, honor roll thing to be the way someone can follow me home your wife told me that she was going to put one in your car that said dad bod or something dad like bod yeah. yeah at this point they're saying that uh <laughs> jason momoa has a dad bod or all these all these muscular hollywood types so dad bods are fine, in right now. Dad bod, i'll take it that's fine yeah if chris pratt's got a dad bod count me in <laughs>
1: In more political news, the Senate Judiciary Committee investigates a second potential Supreme Court leak. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Insider, Fox News, New York Times, and The Washington Examiner. Following a New York Times report published over the weekend, the Senate Judiciary Committee announced that it intends to investigate a potential leak of the 2014 Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Supreme Court decision to anti-abortion activists. According to the report, Reverend Bob Schenk an evangelical minister and leader of the Faith and Action Group, alleged that Justice Samuel Alito prematurely revealed the court's decision to activist Gail Wright over a dinner. Wright was one of the several members of Shanks' group who attempted to gain close access to conservative justices for lobbying purposes. Alito, who wrote the decision, has denied the accusation as, quote, completely false. Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee said that the committee is looking into leak allegations, which allowed corporations to refuse to pay for contraception, as required by the Affordable Care Act, based on religious reasons. This comes as the court's marshal is also investigating the leak this year of the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization majority opinion, which overturned the federal right to abortion as established by Roe v. Wade. That opinion was also written by Alito. Unlike federal judges, Supreme Court justices aren't bound by a written code of ethics. Some in Congress are calling for the creation of one.
0: Thanks for the facts, Eric. Washington Examiner brings us the Republican narrative. Everyone who was reportedly involved in this leak has denied it. And there are many holes in Schenck's story. Plus, he's a flip-flopper who once opposed abortion but now believes it should be left up to individuals. Schenck isn't credible and neither is this
1: serious accusation. And the Democratic narrative coming from Balls and Strikes. Even if Alito didn't leak the Hobby Lobby decision, the fact that he and the other conservatives allow themselves to be wined and dined by activist groups irreparably tarnishes the Supreme Court. They pretend to be above the political fray in D.C., but in reality, they're down in the muck with the Republicans and lobbyists. They should face more accountability.
0: All right, our final story comes from the world of cryptocurrency as two Estonian men are arrested over a $575 million scheme. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Radar Online, CBS, Fox News, DW, and the United States Department of Justice. The FBI and Estonian police on Sunday arrested two Estonian men who have been charged with one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, 16 counts of wire fraud, and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. They face a maximum of 20 years in prison if convicted. The men are accused of defrauding hundreds of thousands of people through multiple crypto-related schemes, including coercing victims into fraudulent rent contracts and investing a total of $575 million in a fake cryptocurrency bank called Polybius Bank and then never paying dividends. Between 2015 and 2019, the men, Sergei Potapenko and Ivan Tarogin, also allegedly tricked people into buying contracts for a cryptocurrency mining service called Hashflare, after which the duo used shell companies to launder the fraud proceeds to purchase real estate and luxury cars. Some of the victims were from the U.S. state of Washington, with Seattle U.S. attorney Nick Brown saying these defendants capitalized on both the allure of cryptocurrency and the mystery surrounding cryptocurrency mining to commit an enormous Ponzi scheme, They lured investors with false representations and then paid early investors off with money from those who invested later. As the FBI investigates the case, U.S. Attorney General Kenneth Polite Jr. of the U.S. Department of Justice's Criminal Division said, U.S. and Estonian authorities are working to seize and restrain these assets and take the profit out of these crimes. Four other suspects were also charged in Estonia,
1: Belarus, and Switzerland, but their identities have not been released. Those were the facts. And let's shed some light on the spins, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Verge. As the entire world becomes aware of what was once a niche hobby for enthusiasts, governments and the general public have begun to understand that unregulated cryptocurrency is a growing threat to unsuspecting investors. Blatant Ponzi schemes like this are tragic for those who fall for them. But so are the so called stable coins like Bitcoin that can lose over half their value seemingly overnight. Regulators need to be on top of this volatile industry before more victims lose their savings. The establishment critical narrative comes from Red State. Despite what you may hear in the news and from
0: politicians, the government is not broadening its investigatory and regulatory reach to help people fight crypto schemes. On the contrary, the establishment wants to use Ponzi scheme stories to cudgel students into giving them the power to control how they invest
1: and what they purchase. And we have our final nerd narrative saying that there's a 50% chance that at least five countries will recognize Bitcoin as legal tender by January 1st of the year 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thanks for listening to the Improved the News podcast for Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles
1: differ. Want more information on Improve the News? Visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric steider inviting you to join us next time on improve the news